You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. First and second, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Uh, we're going to jump right in so four books doesn't take four hours. Amen? Uh, so let's, uh, you can take out our discipleship pastor afterwards who mapped out the books. I'm going to have a word with him about giving me four books at one time. Actually, they flow together great. It's going to be hopefully a great Sunday as we understand God's word to his people. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're thankful that you love us. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful that you've given us the words, your thoughts through our scriptures that we can understand who you are, what you've done for us, what you expect of us, who you want us to be, our mission, everything we need to know we have in our Bibles that you've revealed to us. So I ask we'll be found faithful, that you'll keep the enemy out of this place, that you'll be with all of our churches as they gather today. We're thankful to be together in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I should probably give a shout out to you Braves fans who are partying like it's 1999 with your first World Series appearance since then. I'm extremely anti-Braves, but I'll throw you all a bone this morning in good Christian love. Uh, so congratulations on that. And my Canes finally won yesterday, so go Canes, watch out. So that's my quick little thoughts for the morning. First Timothy. So First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus have been called pastoral epistles because each one is a letter written to someone who has pastoral leadership responsibilities. That does not mean it's only relevant towards pastors. It's not saying that. It's a word to pastors for their churches of how they're to lead and operate and think and deal with the issues going on at the time. So 1 Timothy, where we'll start, gives advice on the issues happening in their church life on which the recipient of the letter will need some guidance, need some encouragement, some mentorship. And Timothy was not the actual pastor of the church at this time that they're writing the letter to, but he was more like kind of Paul's liaison, his representative who implemented Paul's instructions to the local churches. And dealing with false teachers is the primary occasion for the letter. Dealing with false teaching is the main purpose of 1 Timothy. God cares very much about what we believe and that we get it right. Not in a legalistic way, not in, you know, maybe like holding like some kind of divine baseball bat over your head, but out of love and out of his own glory, he cares very much what churches teach and what churches believe. If you're visiting a church, maybe we're not the best one for you, I'm not sure, but just make sure that the church you pick out, you know exactly what they believe about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about the church. All these things matter very, very much. I would say the most important thing you can possibly do in finding a church is picking a church based on what they believe. There's other factors that well that there's other factors as well that matter. But a lot of those things are preferences. It's close to my house. I know people, the music, all things that matter. But nothing matters more in the scriptures for the church than the theology and doctrine of that church. So here we go. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. That's why you're here. That is your ministry. That's why you're staying put or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Christians don't buy into myths. We don't buy into conspiracy theories. We don't let Facebook or blogs or social media drive what we believe. The scriptures as God has revealed them drive what we believe. He says, what do they do? They promote empty speculations. Rather than God's plan, we actually have God's plan in the Bible, so we want that to be our source. It operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love. That's important. Again, it's not a divine baseball bat saying, believe this, you're wrong. It's not that. 
it's driven by love. One, God's love for himself and his own name and glory, but also for his people. And also for those who don't know him to actually see who he is truly as he's revealed himself, that the Christians actually believe and teach the right things. It comes from a pure heart. It's not just trying to be right. It's not just trying to win an argument. It's a pure heart. It's a good conscience, and it's a sincere faith. So at the same time he's calling out false teaching, out of the same breath he's saying it's a sincere faith out of love. In other words, those things aren't at odds with each other. Correction and reproof is not at odds with love, regardless what they tell us in 2021. Then he hits on a big issue they need to know. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. In a polytheistic culture, he's saying, let it be known. People are going to try to tell you there's more than one God. No, there's not. There's one God. We've also sinned against him, and he will not let sin go unpunished. So thankfully, he's provided Jesus to be the one who took on this punishment for sin in our place. He's the mediator. What does the mediator do? A mediator, we see in our legal system, a mediator takes two hostile parties, and brings them together to reach an agreement. What Jesus has done is he has taken two hostile parties, God and rebellious people like us, and has reconciled us through his blood. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gave himself as a ransom for all. He bought us back. He paid the ransom, a testimony at the proper time. So he makes that clear and says, don't compromise here. People are going to try to tell you there's other mediators between God and man, like circumcision, like good works, like religious rituals. He's like, no, only Jesus is the mediator. Hold fast to that. Hold on to that. Our entire faith is based on what we believe to be true about salvation alone through Jesus Christ. That's essentially what it means to be Christian, is to believe there's no other way to God, except the way that God himself and his love has provided, which is Jesus himself. And then he gives us how a church should operate. And he introduces two offices for us that exist in a local church setting, or at least should. Those are the offices of overseer, which is often called an elder, as we call it here, and also a deacon. Two separate offices, not one in the same thing. A lot of churches, if you were raised Baptist, oftentimes the deacons kind of function like elders rather than having two separate groups. But in the scriptures, there's actual two separate leadership groups, or we should say offices of the church, called overseer or elder and deacon. Here's what he says about that. This saying is trustworthy, chapter 3. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, which is a good thing to aspire to that, he desires a noble work. It's an important thing for a church to have godly overseers. And then Paul lists the qualifications Things such as living above reproach, being a respectable person, not being quarrelsome are some of the things that are listed. Also, a qualification for an overseer that separates from a deacon is being able to teach. That doesn't mean you can speak in front of a thousand people. That's not what it's talking about. Paul himself even says that he wasn't even very eloquent, but rather that you can actually handle the word of God properly. It doesn't mean you have these amazing TED Talk skills but rather you understand the scripture. So our overseers, our elders, actually go through a theological training for several months, read lots of books, lots of theology, just to make sure that they're able to teach, that they rightly can handle the word of God. Why? Because Paul says that's essential for the church. Timothy, you stay there. Make sure they don't teach false doctrine. They are kind of guardians, you could even say, of the church's theology and beliefs. If I got off track, 
if I started teaching all these crazy things, or even just subtle things, if some kind of you know, legalistic fundamentalism crept in, or progressive theological liberalism, whatever it might be, it would be the overseers of the church that would deal with me. If that means redirect and correct and reproof or see what's going on, or if I'm unrepentant of that, that means kicking me out to the pasture. Whatever it takes, overseers are to guard the church. And then for deacons, it says, those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in, that, in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Because deacons are kind of sticking their neck out there. They're getting involved in the messy things. Deacons in the Bible are servants. They're doing a lot of hands-on ministry for the needs of the church. So elders and deacons are positions that God prescribes for churches to have in terms of their function and their organization. He tells us this in chapter 4, pay close attention to your life. Think about this. Listen to these words. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. One translation says, watch your life and watch your doctrine. He says, preserve in these things. This is what God wants for you. Preserve in how you live faithfully and how you teach and believe faithfully. Preserve in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourselves. Why? Because salvation is through Christ, through the proper message, and your hearers, because that's the message they need. We're actually, remember he said it's written in love? We're actually not loving those who are far from God, who don't know Jesus, if we teach them something other than the scriptures. Because what do we believe they need? They need Jesus. They need to be saved from their sins. They need to trust in Christ. They need to repent. So any kind of message other than that that says, oh, just be a good person. Oh, just go to church. Oh, just fill in the blank is a false message and ultimately is unloving. He says, teach and encourage these things. God celebrates the proper teaching of the scriptures. And not just the proper teaching, the proper reading. Like when you actually have your devotional time, when you communicate the faith to someone else, when you pray, all of these things come together in what you believe to be true. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he's conceited. As in he's the one that's being divisive. He or she, whoever is promoting it, whoever is proclaiming it, they're the ones that are saying they know better than the Bible. That they know better than the word of God. It's not those who are holding on to the truth who are being divisive. It's the conceited person saying, I know God says that, but I think it's this. He understands nothing. The Bible says in Psalm 14 that it's a fool who doesn't believe in God. But has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. That's what's really happening. They're just trying to be right. They just want to prove themselves as smart. They just like to argue for the sake of arguing. He's saying they're conceited. It's unhealthy. They have interest in things other than the scriptures and arguments and debates. That doesn't mean you can't talk about things. That doesn't mean you can't sit up with a friend and debate things in the Bible. He's not saying that. He's saying they're debating things falsely, trying to undermine the mission and ultimately undermine God's glory. Then the last chapter, he gets real practical about what they're dealing with, wants to instruct them out of love and care for the church. He wants to talk about money for a second. He says, hey, church, the love of money? Notice he doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's one of the most misinterpreted or misquoted scriptures in the Bible. People say, you know, money's the root of all evil. No, it's not. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But here's what's hard. No one actually thinks they love money. No one ever actually admit that they do. But in our hearts so often, what drives us and the decisions we make, the conflicts we have, are driven by a love for money. 
He says, and by craving it, what's happened? Some have wandered away from the faith. Money's become their God and pierced themselves with many griefs. Many griefs. How many folks do you know who have blown up their lives once they got some money? I mean, sometimes having an amazing inheritance or winning the lottery could be the worst thing that ever happened to you. I mean, it really could. Because it can cause you to change. You ever seen someone or known someone who said, man, they've really changed once they started getting successful? Once they started having more money? Like, everything about them changed. They look different. I don't mean they, like, got in shape because they could afford a trainer finally. But, like, but I mean, they, just, they look different. They talk different. They think different. They operate different. What's important to them has shifted and changed. And Paul's warning Timothy, going, this can happen there. So just make sure when it comes to these great things God has given us, like, that money is a good thing. Make sure it doesn't become a God thing. Because here's what happens when it does. It's going to lead us to griefs in the future based on decisions we make because of that love. And then he gives an opposite approach. But you, man of God, flee from these things. Instead of pursuing the world's riches, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He's given them the way of the Christian versus the way of the world. Christians, yes, we make money, which I believe we're all called to do to provide for our families. However, we don't live for money. That's a critical distinction to make as the people of God. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Remain in your beliefs and grab onto those and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Then you get to 2 Timothy. And the big theme here is to encourage the believers to stand strong, to be unashamed of the good news of Jesus, and to stop being so scared, even though by the world standards, they have a lot of reasons to be scared based on persecution, alienation, uh, being, you know, I guess you could say, disenfranchised, excommunicated from their families, major things because of their faith in Christ. And here's what Paul tells them. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. I think one of the biggest things coming our direction as Christians is to understand what it looks like to live our lives in an increasing hostile environment where we're going to eventually see ourselves as religious minorities and how to live that out without fear. And that scriptural balance in love and without fear for us as a church to continue to figure out how to do that because it's complicated. And he gives them some tips on what that looks like. He says, so don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So don't have any shame. I remember when I was a kid, like in middle school, one of the things we'd say at our FCA, I don't even know if my FCA leader even remembers this, she used to say, don't have any shame in your game. And I remember that to this day now at 40 years old. That when it comes to following Jesus, God wants us to be unashamed of the gospel and also unashamed of those who are serious about Christ. You ever get a little embarrassed about someone who's really serious about Jesus? They kind of embarrass you a little bit. But they're the kind of person that at a restaurant like talks to the waiter about the Lord. And they're the kind of person that like wants to pray all the time. And they're the person that like wears Christian t-shirts and gets all excited about that. And you're kind of like, yeah, a little embarrassed by them. Here's Paul in prison. There's a reason to be embarrassed. It's, wow, he's living for Christ. Now he's thrown in jail. Wow, this faith works really well. He's going, no, no, no. Those who are zealous in a godly way, in a righteous way for the Lord, let's not be ashamed of that. Because to be ashamed of that is really going by the world's rules and trying to impress them rather than going all in with Christ. 
He said, instead, share in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Rather than fear, rather than trying to run away from suffering, that we understand God wants to use it. We're gonna, if Jesus suffered, then why would we think we're exempt from it? And in that suffering is when we actually rely on the power of God. So when you had the love of money in 1 Timothy, it can be kind of hard to rely on the power of God. Instead, you rely on the reality of money, your skills, your earnings, your potential, whatever it might be. Those who are suffering are forced either to abandon the faith, which does happen sadly, or to fully rely on the Lord. He says he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Remind them over and over again of who they are, not according to our works, because our works can't remedy the fact that we have sinned against God. Remember, Jesus is the mediator, but according to his own purpose and grace. Listen to these words. And this is why these doctrines like election and predestination and all these things that may make you wiggle in your seat a little bit are so important for the faith, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Think about what that says. Before time began, you know what that means? Before time began. And we need to put that into our minds that God sovereignly has been working out your salvation and his purposes and plans for your life since before history even happened, occurred, or took place. That's how much he loves you, and that's how much you can trust him. He's been working that long. We can't even have, we don't have a time period for outside of before time began. Well, that's the best English we can use. How critical. So these people who are scared, who are suffering, he says, whoa, 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 don't forget, he's saved us and called us, not according to our works, we'd fail miserably, but because of his purpose, because of his grace, and this was given to you, this purpose that God has for you to live for his glory and for his love and for his mission before time even existed. How amazing is our God and how great is our salvation, church? And think about those things. Rather than lead us to other I guess, responses which are appropriate, like asking questions and curiosity, I think the first thing you should do is lead us to awe and lead us to, wa- lead us to wonder of going, look what God has done for us. How incredible is our salvation? Notice the gospel message is always the inspiration in the Bible to stand firm. Because in the gospel, you see the glory of God and realize it's greater than anything man can do. So he tells them, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me. You're suffering, there's persecution, you're a religious minority, you gotta grab onto it. And in faith and love, they're in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. By God's grace, working in your life, hold on to these things, remember these things. See, the local church is designed by God to be kind of a type of a guardian of the truth. That's like part of our role as local churches is to hold on and guard the truth that should matter to you deeply. And as we do that, chapter two, verse three, he wants us to share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in the suffering. Now in our culture, rightly so, we honor soldiers, like real soldiers, like earthly soldiers who have suffered. Like a purple heart is a big deal in our culture, right? Memorial Day is a big deal in our culture, and it rightly should be. We're to give honor to whom honor is due. That's why on Veterans Day, we acknowledge our veterans. We have them stand up. Why? We give honor to that. We are thankful for that. 
And as important as that is, the Christian veteran will tell you that nothing's more important than Jesus. So if we honor those who have suffered for our country, here he says a good soldier is someone who suffers for Christ. And how do we honor someone who suffers for Christ? We come alongside of them. We walk with them. We help them strengthen their faith. We pray for them. We love them. And we don't try to avoid or run away from their suffering. We run to it. The biggest mistakes I've made in ministry, my, like, if I had to list like five times where I really messed up in ministry, besides just being a bonehead in general, which I have those tendencies, uh, have been when I didn't run towards someone suffering and went away from it. Out of things like not knowing what to say, um, thinking that maybe I'll bombard them and they don't want somebody around so much or somebody else, they have enough people, they don't know me very well, you know, so somebody else will do it. They, they have enough friends. Like, like those kind of ideas have always been when I've messed up the most. So I just kind of made a commitment since then. I'm going to do my best because not as a pastor, but as one who wants to be a good soldier with other good soldiers to try to run to the suffering. Doesn't mean I'm perfect there. Doesn't mean I still don't mess up. Sometimes I just don't know about it or find out later than I want to. But to run to the suffering, I encourage you to do the same. He says, this saying is trustworthy. You're hearing so many things out there, church. I'm going to tell you what's trustworthy, he says. If we died with him, which happens when we repent of our sins, where our old self is gone, our new self has come, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him, self-future here. If we deny him, be not mistaken, he will also deny us. Like, you'll get what you wanted, which is not to be with God. And here's one of my favorite just words in all the Bible. Think about this to a hurting, persecuted, scared, confused people. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? He can't break his promises. If you're in Christ, we're told in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. When our faith wavers, his is, he is always faithful. That's why mustard seed type faith is rewarded in the scriptures. Mustard seed, the smallest seed that existed that was found at that time. That Jesus even looks at that and says, this is good faith. Why? Because it's not the object of your faith that is the emphasis. It's your God and his faithfulness and his bigness that is the emphasis. So a big God is the source of our faith rather than a big, huge, massive faith. Now we want to have big faith because of that. But we're told that when we're faithless, he remains faithful. And he goes, here's what's coming. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, this is 2,000 years ago. Demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than, it's an opposite, lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. And he tries to play the game sometimes and wants to do the rituals and present themselves as Christian but has denied the actual work that happens in our heart of regeneration and salvation that changes us. He says avoid these people. Not that they aren't part of the mission, not that we shouldn't love them. In other words, this is in the context, don't get sucked in by that. By avoid these people, it's avoid their mindset, avoid their worldview, avoid their lifestyle. Why? Because again, you've been called. You have been made holy. 
You have a God who is faithful. If you remain in him, he remains in you. Then he gets real. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice he's not trying just to relieve it all or give the, or he's just not trying to say the right things. He wants to be actually truthful with them about what's coming. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, again, there's always a contrast. There's always a comma. Here's what's happening, but you're different as the people of God. As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. They need reminders over and over again. Being reminded of the basics of the faith is not elementary. It's not just for new Christians. Here in the Bible, when we see letters written to elders and pastors of churches, they're bringing them back over and over again to the foundation. Why? Because that's what we have. And that's what God's given us. And that's how he's revealed his love to us by understanding these things. He says, you, he says, you know those who taught you. You know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. And for us, we think that happens first at home, most importantly. That's why that faith at home class we have pride is so important. And also through our children's ministry at the church. Home primary. The church coming alongside and supplementing and coming alongside of you in that endeavor. You've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. And is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And what's the whole point? So the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what does God use for that? the Bible, and others to teach it to us. In our suffering, when things are going well, we continue to need the same thing, the scriptures over and over again. So in his context of telling Timothy not to be afraid, not to be ashamed, what he brings them back to is the reliability of the Bible, the trustworthiness of our salvation, the faithfulness of God, that these are the things that drive us to have no fear. I remember during the, the peak of COVID when we couldn't meet and we were having to meet online. And for me, it was just like the worst thing ever, honestly, because uh, I love the local church and the local church comes together. There's no such thing as Zoom church. There's just not. But it's the hand we were dealt, so we just kind of had to roll with it. And there'd be moments where I'm just being a human being. I'm thinking, are we going to have church ever again? And like, when you're a local church, you're 100% dependent upon the church members funding the church. Loving God and his mission in the church more than, they love, more than they love money. Like you're dependent upon that, like 100%. Our missionaries around the world are dependent upon our church financially giving to city church so we can send it out to the world. So my mind's just going. Talk about anxiety and stress and near panic attacks and like are we gonna have church again? Or we do, is it gonna be a shell of ourselves? Are there going to be 25 people when we get back? And it's going to be a fundamentally, I just didn't know any of these things. And eventually, just through conversations with just trusted friends and people, they, they got to go, let's go Bible. Do you believe that Jesus is building his church or not? Does the Bible say he's building it or does it not? Well, it does. Do you believe that all scripture is inspired by God? Every single word. Yes and reminders and reminders and reminders. And if all that's true, do you think a virus or a mandate or a government ruling can stop that? 
then of course I want to punch the person in the face for being right at that moment, but those are the things that you need. When things happen and there's fear, what we are brought back to over and over again are the promises of God. Does God promise us we're never going to get sick? That's nowhere in the Bible. Does God promise us a long life on this earth? That's not promised in the Bible. You know what's promised in the scriptures? That God is faithful, that he keeps his word, and that the scriptures are true. And that's what we cling to as believers. Whatever it is going on in your life that brings about fear, or it brings about some shame about Christianity, it's back to the basics of the faith that you hold on to and believe in. Then we get to Titus. We see this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, that that's what God's about. And the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. In his own time, he's revealed his word and the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Titus is written to a church leader who is in Crete, which is where the legend said that Zeus was born in Greek mythology. And Zeus was a lowercase g god who would seduce women, who would lie over and over again in his legend. And here out of the gate, right into these people where the whole presence of Zeus is everywhere, what does he say about God? God cannot lie. Zeus does not have, one, he doesn't exist, but second, Zeus does not have the character of our God. And there was corrupt leadership in this very kind of trendy cosmopolitan, very industrial in terms of business kind of town, and there was corrupt leadership having false teachings throughout the churches in that area. Many churches popping up, and here is corrupt leadership teaching corrupt things happening. And he says this, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So the remedy that God has through the writing of Paul to Titus to change the game in Crete for the church is to get new leadership in there. Elders that meet the qualifications, they're going to hold, hold on to the right teaching of the scriptures and basically reverse what's been happening. And that always starts with leadership. You got to get out the false teachers and get people of integrity who believe the scriptures as God has revealed them to us in leadership. He says, there are many rebellious people. Here's what's going on in Crete. They're full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. They're spreading a false gospel that it's not Jesus alone who's the mediator. You have to be circumcised as well because it's necessary to silence them. Why? Because they're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. As corrupt as can be, preying on God's people to get financial benefit dishonestly. It's just terrible. And he says, and he's out of the gate going, this is a problem. They got to get out of here. We need new leadership. One of their own, own very prophets said, Cretans are always liar, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Cretans knew how bad they were. They said that about themselves. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply. Why? So you can be right? So you can shame them? So you can own the libs? No, so they can be sound in their faith. That's why. So they can be sound in their faith. That's what God wants for them and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. 
Because here's what's much better. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it tell us to do? Christians in Crete being tempted by all these things, deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and instead live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. As you're focusing on heaven and a world to come, be faithful here presently while we wait the blessed hope that appearing to the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for people, for himself, a people of his own possession. And because that's happened, now we're eager to do good works in the secular place where we live. Because we want to do with this, proclaim these things, be counterculture, countercultural. Encourage and rebuke with all authority because you have authority in the word of God and let no one disregard you. You're going to get mocked, but guess what? You speak on behalf of God when you speak from the scriptures. And then we're going to get to Philemon. I'm going to go through the book of Titus eventually, verse by verse. Because there's so much there just in those, those short three chapters that I really want us to understand and believe. So Philemon, what's happening here is, this is the most very short book of the Bible, and I'm glad it's included by God's sovereignty in the scriptures through the Holy Spirit, because there's much for us here. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome and wrote a letter to his friend Philemon. So Philemon was a, a very wealthy Christian for his time who hosted a house church in Colossae. He came to his house. They would gather in his house on the Lord's Day. They'd read the scriptures together, pray together, sing together, all those things. He had most likely been converted to Christ sometime earlier through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So he had an actual connection to Paul in his conversion. And after telling Philemon how grateful he is for him and what he prays for him, Paul brings up a name from Philemon's past, which is Onesimus. Brings up this name that, that Philemon would have recognized from before. Well, who was Onesimus? Onesimus was an unbelieving bondservant or a slave who had left some form of slavery that he was under in Philemon's household. Now, I acknowledge this can be very complicated of thinking how we should view slavery from 2,000 years ago and why the Bible sometimes presents it the way that it does. Uh, so we don't know exactly the form of slavery. He could have owed a debt to Philemon that he was working off through what they would call slavery. There's a little bit of mystery here. and We have to just kind of in the tension just sort of receive that today as, as just kind of that being enough. And reading between the lines here, he, um, Onesimus may have run away. Uh, he also probably stole, it looks like, from Philemon. because There was such to be reconciled that Paul talks about. And in the amazing providence of God, even kind of the strange mystery of God, Onesimus, this escaped bondservant or slave, crosses paths with the imprisoned Paul a thousand miles away from Rome. And through their conversations, Onesimus actually came to be a believer and came to trust in Christ and was mentored in the faith by Paul in the same way Philemon had earlier. So Paul writes a letter on behalf of Onesimus who would be returning back to Philemon to reconcile with him. So here is Philemon, a believer, who had the house church in his home. And here is Onesimus, who was one of his bondservants or slaves, which could have meant a lot of things. But regardless, in the structure, for lack of better words, Philemon was the master, okay? And Onesimus was the servant or the slave or the bondservant. So this is the reality. So now, here comes Onesimus, who's a believer, coming back to Philemon, a believer, but also someone who, for however reason, had some sort of rights to this human being. 
and Paul sends them back to reconcile. See, the gospel is so radical, and we don't even have a category for the grace of God. There's a reason why the world thinks that, Christians, that Christianity is foolishness, as 1 Corinthians tells us. Because the way of Jesus is so different than any category we have in the world. And here's what it says. This is what Paul writes. This is to Philemon. For perhaps, and most Bible scholars believe Onesimus is the one who brought the letter to Philemon. So Philemon walks in with a letter from Paul. Or excuse me, Onesimus walks in to Philemon's house with a letter from Paul. And Philemon's like, oh boy. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time. So you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He's especially so to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What's he telling them? In Christ, we're told earlier, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. He's saying, here is Onesimus coming back to you not to be viewed as your slave, but as your equal. As your equal. Why? Because the gospel shatters all of our power categories. He now comes back as someone, and even acknowledges, I know that he probably owes you money, I know there's things going on here, here's how he comes back. This new relationship would defy all the ingrained status distinctions of a surrounding Greek and Roman culture. They would blow it all up. The Philemon wouldn't just be getting a bondservant back, he'd be getting a brother in Christ back. And Paul saw this reunion of Philemon and Onesimus as an opportunity for both men to provide the church and the world a living example of a visible portrait of gospel reconciliation. That all the theology we believe will be played out with how these two reconciled. What a story. Paul's writing a personal letter here. But it's important to know, this last verse I'll read, he wants to share with the whole church. Because he actually says in verse 2, this letter, and to the church that meets in your home. Because he wants the people of God to see what radical reconciliation looks like. Why? Because the most radical reconciliation that's ever happened is the fact that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. That a holy God would allow a sinful people to be reconciled to himself. A master and a slave being reconciled? That is low-fat vanilla ice cream JV team compared to the fact that God has reconciled you, a sinner, to his holy self. And it has power that can define and change and alter and transform even the most oppressive relationships here on earth. Paul Carter says that Christianity taken seriously completely undermines the institution of slavery. Turns it upside down. Completely upside down. Why? Because in Christ, we're brothers, we're brothers and sisters before anything else. And it radically makes us have to redefine and change and alter and switch any institution, any category, anything of this world that would be contrary to the reconciliation that we have in Christ. What a story. And Paul says, Philemon is so much bigger than you. No yeah buts, no what abouts, all the things that you want to say to me back right now, Philemon. You're a Christian first. And here's Onesimus, a brother of Christ, walking the door, hand the letter to you, saying that in God's eyes we are equals. So now, act like it. Theology played out 
in real life. Pretty cool. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the scriptures. We're thankful for the stories. I'm thankful that we could see the importance of right teaching in First and Second Timothy and Titus. And then we see why theology matters so much by how it's played out in Philemon and Onesimus. So we're just thankful that we have a living theology that works and that is relevant and requires action steps and application. And I ask that we will be people who, one, are first to make sure we're reconciled to you through Jesus, but also be reconcilers to each other. We'll be serious about relationships and serious about protecting your truth and loving your people and loving those who are far from you. So we ask that we will be found faithful as a church body. We're thankful that through all the difficult times of COVID and shutdown a year ago and all the things the church went through, that, that here we are today, gathered together, that our college ministry will meet this week and our student ministry and our children's ministry, all, all the things that are happening right now. But we give you the glory for that. So I ask we'll be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will have no fear as coming religious minorities in our country because we will remember the one who is faithful. Lord, help us to remember your promises. We depend on the Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us to be able to do so. And Lord, we ask that we'll be a faithful church and a faithful people, all focused on Jesus and his work for us. In whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing some good news.